Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, God Blessed Jacob There, Our Human Struggle with the Divine. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 31st, 2011. Director Terence Malick has made only five films in 40 years. So a new work by the reclusive Rhodes Scholar who taught philosophy at MIT is an event in and of itself. The Tree of Life, 2011, which is Malick's first film since 2005, won the Golden Palm Award for Best Picture at the Cannes Film Festival. I recently watched it a second time and consider it one of the best films I've ever seen. The Tree of Life depicts our human struggle to squeeze some meaning out of life in a cosmos that is both beautiful and terrifying. A recurring flame in the movie symbolizes what A.O. Scott of the New York Times calls an elusive deity who is both the film's overt subject and the source of its deepest, most anxious mysteries. To explore such universal metaphysical questions, Malik focuses on one particular family in Waco, Texas, where Malik was born during the 1950s. The film thus shines the light of the sacred on secular reality. The O'Briens, played by Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain, are a young couple with three boys who experience the gift of life with all its joys and sorrows. The father is deeply devoted to his family, but understandably scary to his children. He's known vocational disappointment, financial reversal, deep regrets, and feelings of failure. The mother observes that we all have a choice to live by what she calls by nature or by grace. To live by grace means we'll never be disappointed, no matter how great our loss. To live by nature means we'll never know happiness, no matter how great our gain. The Tree of Life begins with a quotation from Job 38.4, which is to say our human struggle elicits a divine question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Malik tracks the memories of the oldest son, Jack, played by Sean Penn, who recalls his youthful innocence, adolescent awakening to good and evil, the death of his brother, and his uneasy place in the world as an adult. The film ends with a voiceover prayer. Help us. Guide us till the end of time. Which prayer is followed by a response? Follow me. This prayer then segues to a celestial beach scene symbolizing an afterlife where cosmic reconciliation prevails over all our human struggle. The Old Testament reading this week from Genesis 32 is a story of one of the most famous human struggles with the divine, Jacob's encounter with God at the river Jabbok. The outcome of his struggle is not what we might expect. Deep-seated family hostilities characterize Jacob's life. Because Isaac and Rebekah played favorites, he and his fraternal twin Esau hated each other. 
Jacob swindled Esau of his family birthright, which entitled him to a double share of the family inheritance. Later, he lied to swindle the family blessing from his blind and dying father. When Esau threatened to kill him, Jacob fled to his uncle Laban in Haran, the very place his grandfather Abraham had departed. Jacob married his cousins, Rachel and Leah, and eventually fathered thirteen children with them and their two slaves, Zilpah and Billah. Sick of his father-in-law's manipulations, Jacob fled Laban, only to encounter his embittered brother Esau. The consummate dealmaker, Jacob concocted a bribe and sent a caravan of gifts, along with his women and children, across the river Jabbok. Maybe that would pacify his brother's threats. Physically exhausted and deeply anxious about Esau, alone in the desert wilderness, shorn of his considerable worldly possessions, and powerless to control his fate, Jacob collapsed into a deep sleep on the banks of the river. With Laban behind him and Esau before him, he was too spent to struggle any longer. But only then did his real struggle begin. Fleeing his family had been bad enough. Wrestling with God was a different matter. That long, lonesome night, an angelic stranger visited Jacob. They wrestled through the night until daybreak, at which point the stranger crippled Jacob with a blow to his hip that made him limp for the rest of his life. But by then Jacob knew what had happened. In Genesis 32:30, he says, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. In the process, Jacob the deceiver, for that's the meaning of Jacob, received a new name, Israel, which means he struggles with God. Most important, and most unlikely of all, at the conclusion of that riverbank struggle, we read that God blessed Jacob there. Genesis 32:29. Frederick Buechner calls Jacob's divine encounter the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Similarly, in her book, Scarred by Struggle, Transformed by Hope, the Benedictine nun and writer Joan Chittister uses the Jacob story as a paradigm for what she calls a spirituality of struggle. In Jacob's story, she identifies eight elements of our human struggle. Change, isolation, darkness, fear, powerlessness, vulnerability, exhaustion, and scarring. But with each human struggle, there's a corresponding divine gift, conversion, independence, faith, courage, surrender, limitations, endurance, and transformation. Jacob does what all of us must do, writes Chittister, if in the end we too are to become true. He confronts in himself the things that are wounding him, admits his limitations, accepts his situation, rejoins the world, and moves on. The end result of the nocturnal struggle for this cheater and liar was God's blessing. Genesis 32:29. God blessed Jacob there. 
When you read further in Jacob's story, these twin themes of dark struggles accompanied by divine blessing continued to be intertwined. His daughter Dinah was raped. Two of his sons, Reuben and Judah, committed incest. As if to mimic his own parents, Jacob played favorites with his son Joseph, sowing seeds of fraternal enmity for all. And yet God renewed the covenant with him. We read in Genesis 35.9, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And then later in Genesis 48.3, he reminisced, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. Our human struggle with God is never easy. And yet, within that struggle, we experience divine blessing. A few weeks ago, a reader in Vermont sent me a poem by the poet laureate William Stafford called The Way It Is. It offers wise advice for wrestling with God. Listen to Stafford's poem. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Jacob's struggle reminds us of that thread. We may struggle with God through the night, but by daybreak he only intends to bless us. For books this week, I review a title called Revelation of the Magi by Brent Landau, a translation and an introduction. New York, Harper One, 2010, 157 pages. Almost everyone has heard of the three wise men from the East who followed the star and offered their gifts to the Christ child. But also, almost no one, says Brent Landau, including specialists, had ever heard of the book Revelation of the Magi a lengthy narrative that claims to be the personal testimony of the Magi themselves on the events of Christ's coming. Though versions of this legend were well known in Christian Europe throughout the Middle Ages, this book presents the first ever complete English translation. Landau stumbled across a mention of Revelation of the Magi in a journal article and ended up writing his 2008 Harvard dissertation about it. The only known copy of the manuscript is an 8th century Syriac text from the Zundang Monastery in southeastern Turkey. This Syriac text was somehow taken to an Egyptian monastery where it was discovered in the 18th century by G.S. Asamani of the Vatican Library, where it resides today. The Revelation of the Magi is also mentioned in the 5th century Latin commentary on Matthew called Opus Imperfectum in Matthew although Landau argues for dating it to the late 2nd or 3rd century. The location and identity of the author are unknown. 
Written as an intricate and complex first-person narrative of 32 short chapters, a total of about 50 pages, the story does not follow Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 2 in any meaningful sense. In this telling, the Magi are not wise men, but rather descendants of Seth, who are known for their praying and silence. From their ancestor Seth, the Magi received the ancient prophecy of the Star Child, which prophecy was fulfilled in their day. The name of the Star Child, Jesus Christ, is never mentioned, except in the last few pages of the text, where it's mentioned almost 20 times. This leads Landau to view the ending where the Magi are baptized by Thomas as a later addition or so-called correction. When Landau turns from history to theology, he suggests that the main contribution of Revelation of the Magi is its unusually positive view of religious pluralism. Jesus is manifested to people all over the world, but never identified. In Landau's interpretation, all forms of religious belief are revelations of Jesus, which in turn makes evangelism superfluous. I am everywhere, says Jesus in the text. There is no land in which I am not. Indeed, the language is in fact universalizing. The star child brings peace, joy, and healing to every human being, to all the worlds, to the entire world, and to all the creatures of the world. The 50 pages of text are preceded by a 30-page introduction and followed by a brief conclusion, 40 pages of endnotes, and a short bibliography. The title of this interesting book, Revelation of the Magi, by Brent Landau. For film this week, we go to China in a title from 2008 called 24 City. State-owned factory number 420 in pre-capitalist Chengdu enjoyed a patriotic past. It boasted its own schools. It paid bonuses for the workers' war efforts. For several decades, it was a top-secret aircraft facility but as the decades rolled by and times changed, it later manufactured washing machines. Director Zhang Qijia digs deeper than the grime and noise of the factory. He captures the deeply personal memories of Factory 420 by interviewing workers and their children from three generations. Zhang deliberately blurs the lines between the real and the surreal by combining straightforward documentary interviews with dramatized interviews played by actors. When the film opens, Factory 420 is a bustle of Dickensian look and feel. But by the end of the film, the bulldozers have moved in, the facilities are dynamited, and construction begins on something called 24 City that will take its place, a five-star commercial and residential complex befitting the new China and displacing the old. The wrenching transition from industrial factory to luxury apartments is a metaphor of modern China. In Mandarin with English subtitles. The title of the film, 24 City.
And finally, for poetry this week, we've taken a poem from St. Bonaventure, who lived from 1221 to 1274. It's taken from his book, The Journey of the Mind to God. Do not assume that mere reading will suffice without fervor, speculation without devotion, investigation without admiration, observation without exaltation, industry without piety, knowledge without love, understanding without humility, and study without divine grace. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 31st, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.